Okay, so let's jump into Hebrews chapter 11 today. We've been in this series that we're calling the Hall of Flaw, and it's based on this passage in Hebrews 11 where the writer of the book of Hebrews begins to list all of these heroes of the faith. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Enoch. By faith, like all of these big, larger-than-life Old Testament heroes are listed And they are exalted for their faith and the things that God did for them. And one of the things you may not know is is scholars believe that the writer of Hebrews was composing a sermon. One theory is that this was just an extended sermon. And the writer is getting to sort of the crescendo of the sermon. It's going to crescendo in chapter 12 where he says, but we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. But he's building up to that. And like any good preacher, or at least considerate preacher, he's trying to get the people out in time to go to lunch. And so he sort of concludes it all up with this, and what more shall I say? Which is like when a preacher says, and in conclusion, which, which you know means absolutely nothing, but, and what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, about David and Samuel and all the prophets, and just sums up this, that's a huge swath of Old Testament history right there. I don't have time to tell you all of their stories and then list all the things that they did, ministering justice, gaining what was promised. They shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the fury of the flames. And then this great line, their weakness was turned into strength. And so the, the writer is getting to this crescendo And over the course of this series, we've actually looked at at most of of the people in Hebrews 11. We're not going to get to some of those that were listed. I want you to tune in next week, though. Uh, Our friend Bo Hamilton, he's been interning with us this summer and helping us with our youth group and is doing an amazing job. He's a student at, at Southern Nazarene University studying for ministry. He's preaching next week about Gideon. I want you to know I took a hard pass on Samson when we were building this uh, series out. I did five weeks on Samson to begin the year, and I vowed that if the Lord would allow it, I will never preach on Samson again, like one of the most frustrating characters in the entire Bible. Uh, took a hard pass on Samson, but um, I'm going to close the series out with, on, on David uh, after, um, in, in two weeks. So we're almost going to tell the story of, of almost all these characters in Hebrews chapter 11. And one of the things we've been highlighting is not so much the, the, the perfection of these heroes, but their flaws. They live normal, ordinary, flawed lives, just like you and just like me. I actually believe we have as much to learn about following Jesus by looking at some of their flaws as we do by looking at their examples of faith. Because this faith emerges out of weakness. It emerges out of the everyday stuff of life that we face on an everyday basis. And as you, as you think about your life of faith, I, 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 I do think it's worth looking at what the writer of Hebrews says here about these heroes. Look at the larger-than-life kind of, of ways that they were living conquering kingdoms, administering justice, shutting the mouths of lions, quenching the fury of the flames, routing foreign armies, leaping tall buildings in a single bound. Oh, wait, that was, that, that was Superman, right? But like, 
they are, like the picture is, these people are, are, are almost superhuman in what they were doing for the Lord. And, and I wonder if maybe you have felt the way I have felt sometimes. I f- have felt like my faith is so inadequate. I have felt as if my faith is so pedestrian, so ho-hum, compared to some of the role models that I've had in my life. I think about some of the role models, the people that have invested in me and the way they trust God unconditionally and how they step out in faith and do amazing things for the Lord. And their life just seems so fantastic. Their relationship with God just seems so plugged in. It seems like they're administering justice and conquering kingdoms and shutting the mouths of lions. And I'm not that. Have you ever felt like your faith just doesn't measure up? Uh, When I was a kid, there was a, a group of bodybuilders and strong men. They formed a ministry, and it was called the Power Team. And the power team went around, and they, they did evangelistic crusades, and they did outreach events. And um, if you're not familiar with the power team, here's uh, one of their promotional uh, posters that uh, Google was, was able to uncover for me. And, and, and these guys would go around, they would do these events, and the best way to describe it is if, like, the WWE wrestlers found Jesus— they would pivot to this. Like, this would be their ministry. Like, they've got the strength and the spray tan and everything you need and the showmanship. Can we, can we transition that to something for Jesus? Yes. It's called the power team. And so uh, the power team would go around. They would do these crusades and these outreach events. And they came to my town, and um, it was awesome. I mean, they were busting blocks and breaking baseball bats and taking steel rebar and biting it in their mouth and bending it. And they would take medicine bottles and inflate them until they popped. Um, They would rip phone books and license plates. And all the while they were saying, I'm ripping this phone book for Jesus. You know, and it was just awesome. And I loved it. And um, at the end, of course, there was an appeal to follow Jesus, and they related all this to, to spiritual realities in our life. And, and I, mean, I was in. I was totally bought in. And, and so I went forward. I made a fo- decision to follow Jesus again. <laughs> uh, I was all in. And I remember as a 13-year-old, I woke up the next day inspired by the power team I found the skinniest phone book we had. Still couldn't break it. Still couldn't rip it in half. I found a, a little two-by-four we had and wasn't able to break it in two. My 13-year-old biceps suddenly didn't transform into, into those guys. And, and I wonder, I don't know who your spiritual role model is, but have you ever gone through a season where it just feels like your faith doesn't measure up? But what I wish I could go back and tell my 13-year-old self is that God didn't need me to have biceps like these guys. God needed me to trust in him. God needed me to take my weakness, what I perceived as a weakness, and by faith allow him to turn it into strength. My 13-year-old biceps couldn't rip a phone book in half, 
but they could be the hands and feet of Jesus in my school and in my neighborhood. And I, and I think that's what we need to understand today as well as, as we consider this hall of flaw and the flaws that we have and the imperfect lives that we live and the pedestrian faith that we feel like we have sometimes. All of those weaknesses God can transform into strength as we depend and rest upon him. And so what we're invited to do through this series and really through our Christian life and we're invited to imagine our ordinary lives of faith as eternally meaningful when partnered together with Jesus. When you bring your life of faith, when you bring your gifts and your talents and your abilities and your 13-year-old biceps that can't rip phone books apart, when you bring those to Jesus and you partner with Jesus with what he is doing to redeem the world, your life becomes eternally significant eternally meaningful. God takes what you have and by faith uses it to transform the world. So you may feel like you're in a sort of ordinary season, but God invites us to find the glory in the ordinary as we trust and as we depend upon him. And today we're looking at Samuel, and there is nothing ordinary about Samuel's life. Let me just say that from the outset. Amazing, amazing, amazing life of faith. But what we may lose in the story of Samuel is some of the real life dilemmas and struggles and decisions that he faced. Some of the things that he faced, they are the exact same dilemmas that we face as well. We find him in a pretty ordinary place, a place that we can probably relate to, a not very fun place. So I want to describe that to you. It's in 1 Samuel 15 and 16. And so let's start by understanding a little bit about who Samuel was. Samuel was the last of the Israelite judges. In the book of Judges, we see this political arrangement where the Israelites are living in the promised land, but they're being ruled by these judges. God would raise them up for a season, uh, and, and, and there was these cycles of disobedience and repentance. And that's all kind of coming to an end as you turn the page from Judges to 1 Samuel. You're introduced to Samuel. And one of the things or one of the ways that Samuel functions in the story of of the Bible is he's a transitional figure from this time of the judges to this time of the monarchy. Israel, as Samuel becomes a judge and as he's doing his best to administer the, the people of God there in Israel, the Israelites begin to clamor for a king. They begin to say, Samuel, you're great, you're good and all, but but what we really need is a king like all the other nations. And Samuel warns them, okay, you can have a king, but you're going to get taxes. Are you sure you want a king? You can have a king, but he's going to conscript your men into his army. Are you sure you want, you, you want your guys being drafted into the army? Yeah, 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 we want all that. We want to protect our borders. We want to establish our kingdom. We want to take new territory. We need someone to lead us to do all of that. And the Lord actually directs Samuel to give them their wish, to give them a king. And so Through the process of discernment, Samuel is led to a guy named Saul. And Samuel has the job of going to anoint Saul as the first king of the Israelites. And so here's how Saul's described. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could ever be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Here's this this really amazing description of Saul just dripping with 
with all kinds of things that we would instantly give leadership attributes to. Man, this guy is tall, he's strong, he's handsome, he's good looking. Like this is the kind of this is the kind of face you can put on posters. This is the kind of face you can build a campaign around. This, this guy just has it all. He's a warrior. Looks like he, he could be able to fight. And so Saul, as, a, as, as the first king, is, is someone that people could get behind really quickly. And so Saul is anointed as the first king. And a few things happen, and, and, and uh, you can read that in 1 Samuel. But, but Saul has a little bit of success, and they, they finally get to a point where they officially make him the king. And look what happens in 1 Samuel 11. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord, and Saul and all the Israelites had a great celebration. Big party. Everybody's happy. Saul's had success. He's, he's good looking. He's tall. He's the kind of guy we can get behind. And somewhere in the midst of the celebration, I just imagine people coming up to Samuel, just patting him on the back. Samuel, man, what a home run hire. Way to go. That's the guy we need. Man, it's about time we had somebody like that. Man, Samuel, can't say thank you enough for bringing Saul to us. Good job. Had a big party. Everybody's happy for Samuel's home run hire. But Saul does exactly what Samuel said kings would do. Saul began to depend upon his human strength. He became obsessed with power. He was plagued by insecurity. And ultimately, instead of pivoting to faith and depending upon the Lord and trusting in, in God, Saul trusted in the, his own strength and the strength of those around him. And there's one a particularly uh, egregious episode, and that's putting it lightly, where, where Saul is commanded to go, Take a city, take no captives, take no prisoners, don't spare any of the livestock. This is what it's going to mean for you to, 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 to be obedient to the Lord. This is what he was commanded to do. And he goes and he takes a city. The Lord gives him the victory. But it doesn't really make sense to kill all the livestock, really. Like, the soldiers are kind of unhappy, and if we spare some of the sheep, Maybe the, the commanders and the captains can take some of these sheep for their own, and that'll keep them happy. And then the little the foot soldiers, like, let them plunder the spoils a little bit, like take a bracelet back for their wife or something like that. Like, it really doesn't make sense to destroy all this stuff. This is good stuff. And so Saul makes a decision to allow the soldiers to take spoils, and he takes some of the livestock. And then there's this strategic issue of, you know, if we spare King Agag... Maybe we can use him as a bargaining chip and create some other alliances and we don't have to go in and just, you know, kill whole cities. And maybe there's some value in sparing the life of King Agag. So we'll just, we'll just spare his life as well. Like all that made sense on paper and the generals said to do it and the captains who got the livestock were happy and the foot soldiers who plundered the sport, they were all happy about it. But the only problem is that's not what God said to do. And so Samuel has to confront Saul. And you read this episode, it's, it's 1 Samuel 15, where, where Samuel does that. He says, hey, this is not what the Lord told you to do. You have stepped outside of God's plan and his purpose for your kingship, and I'm here to deliver some very bad news to you, but God has taken his favor away from you, and he's going to take the kingship away from you as well. 
it became clear that Saul was not going to be the kind of leader that the Israelites needed to be the peculiar people they had been called to be. You see, that. remember the promise to Israel? You're going to be a great nation. Out of you, you will be a blessing to other nations. What this was foreshadowing is out of Israel, God's going to redeem the world. Jesus is going to come through the nation of Israel. It's going to be a peculiar nation, a peculiar people. It's going to be a light to the Gentiles. And Saul, you're not living peculiar at all. You're living like everybody else. You don't have the heart for what it means to lead this people. And so the kingship is, is taken away. And so now Samuel's faced with a very difficult task. Look at 1 Samuel 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil. Be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. And that is a situation we can relate to. Samuel has a very difficult decision to make. And we are in this crucible of decisions every day. There are things, there are dilemmas, there are things coming at us in a constant barrage of decision points. And many times, whether it be in your career or in your family or or in interpersonal relationships, a lot of times you might be in a situation where it just sort of feels like a lose-lose. And you're trying to figure out what is the right direction to take. What Samuel knew in his heart and what we see play out in the story is that the, the right thing is usually the hard thing. You know, the easy thing in this story is to say, well, you know, Look at the results that Saul is getting. I mean, it's sort of one of those situations where you don't ask how. You just kind of look the other way. And if you're on the, the power side of the equation and you benefit from all these decisions, you kind of really don't care just as long as Saul gets the results. But that wasn't the kind of people God was calling Israel to be. And so Samuel realizes that he has to step out and do the right thing which is also the hard thing of anointing a new king. And how many of us live in times and seasons of transition? How many of us would say change is hard? Change is hard. How many of you are experiencing a transition in your family? The matriarch that always planned the family reunion, the matriarch that always got everybody together, the matriarch that whole, held the whole family together, she's not here anymore. It's just not the same. You're trying to figure out what our new family dynamic looks like. You're facing a transition at work. You got a new boss. They do things very differently than your previous boss. You're facing different challenges, different market forces, different cultural realities. 2021 feels a whole lot different than even 2011, 10 years ago. I feel like we're in a season of, of transition. I feel like we're in a season of change. And, and leading through times of transition is, is difficult. And that's where Samuel was at. 
And I want us to think about some of these real-life, earthy decisions that we make on a daily basis regarding our family, regarding our careers, regarding our interpersonal relationships, decision after decision, crossroads after crossroads, dilemma after dilemma, it's coming at us on an almost daily and seen maybe an hourly basis. And as followers of Jesus, we have to process all of that through this lens of being a follower of Jesus. What resources are available to us to make decisions in keeping with who we're called to be. Now, you would expect me to say what I'm about to say. And that is, we go to God's Word and we pray. Read your Bible, pray, go to church. Hey, have a great day, everybody. Um, you would expect me to say something like that, right? Well, those are good things. The discipline of reading Scripture is a good thing. The discipline of prayer is absolutely essential to making decisions in keeping with who we're called to be as, as God's people. Let me say something with those as the foundation. Let me say something with those as the foundation. As people who meditate on God's Word, and if you don't regularly, today's a great time to start as people who regularly meditate on God's Word, as people who are being formed by the story of Scripture, as people who, are, who pray, and if you don't pray regularly, today's a great time to start. As people who allow these spiritual disciplines to form and shape us, how can we make decisions that are in keeping with God's plan and purposes for the world? And here's the good news of Scripture. As we seek wisdom, James said this, if any of you lack wisdom... You should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. There's a promise. It doesn't say people who read the Bible, he's going to give wisdom to. It doesn't say people who pray 24-7, he's going to give wisdom to, although both of those things God uses. But this verse is saying, when we feel as if we are lacking wisdom, we can turn to God and we can ask him, and he will give us wisdom to make decisions that are in keeping with his will for our lives. If you lacks wisdom, ask God. God gives generously by his grace. But look what James goes on to say just a few verses later. He says, everyone, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. He singles out anger as a particularly difficult emotion, an emotion that is not going to help you navigate the dilemmas of life very well. We talked about Moses a few weeks ago, and I asked you, how many of you have ever made a great decision when you're angry? And you're just mad, and you made an instant decision, and it was the best decision. Yeah, none of us, right? But we can take James's word here and think about how when we are in a heightened emotional state, it's probably not the best time to make a crucial decision. And so what, what is James saying? He's saying, let's be slow to speak, quick to listen. Listening takes time. Listening helps us not be angry or not be distraught or not be clouded by all other kinds of emotions that are going on in our life. 
And so when we take time to do that, what are some questions we should ask ourselves when faced with difficult situations? And, and I, I just want to present three as a, a little matrix that we can use based on God's word, based on our identity as Christians. Here's just a little matrix that we can use to help us make decisions consistent with the plan and the purposes of God. Number one, what decision most reflects my core values as a follower of Jesus? As you think about your core identity, who you are as a follower of Jesus, and as you think about the barrage of decisions that are coming your way every day, which one of those most reflect your core values as a follower of Jesus? Jesus said in Matthew 22, What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. With all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so love of God and love of neighbor, it has to be the first thing we think about. Is this decision that I'm about to make, does it reflect my love for God? Does it reflect my love for my neighbor? Is this in any way the loving thing to do for people that I am in relationship with? So, so as we think about our love of God and our love of neighbor, does the decision I'm about to make reflect that core value? Now, the second part of the matrix is probably not a question that your business guru or your, your leadership expert, um, you, know, you know, just picking up a book in the airport kiosk on best practices for business leadership, this, is, this question's probably not going to show up. But number two, how does this decision affect those who are most vulnerable? How does this decision affect those who are most vulnerable? Um, I don't think any of our places of business, are, are as they give you certain certain responsibility and certain leadership. I don't think any of, of our places of businesses, business are saying, hey, I want you to think about vulnerable people in the world. I want you to think about people who are marginalized. And as you lead our company today, I want to make sure you don't make things worse for them. I don't think any boss is telling you that, are they? But we're the people of God. And we're called to live in a peculiar way. And this question is very important because Jesus tells a parable about the end of the age. And we get to Matthew chapter 25, and this is parable of the sheep and the goats, and the judge is separating the, the, the sheep from the goats, the, the real thing versus the imposters. And he separates out the sheep, and the sheep enter into eternal life, and, and the sheep say to the judge, they say, why is it that we are here? What did we do that, that we would be considered sheep? And the judge or the king says, I was hungry. And you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was in prison and you took time to visit me. I was in grief and you took time to comfort me. And they said, we never did any of that. And the king says, oh, yes, you did. You did it to the least of these. You did it to the vulnerable. You did it to the marginalized. You did it to the people that the world had forgotten about. And when you did it to those, you did it to me. And enter in. Well done good and faithful servant, enter into your master's happiness. But the goats say the same thing. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. When did we neglect that? When did we forget to do this? And the king says the same thing. 
There were people that were hungry. You ignored them. There were people that were thirsty. You didn't give them anything to drink. There were people in prison. You didn't care about them. You forgot about them. You let them rot there. No, he didn't. And the king said, yes, you did, because you neglected the least of these. And when you neglected the least of these, you did it unto me. And so this question is so important to us as followers of Jesus. And when we give an account of our life and the leadership that we've had, are we going to be able to stand before the Lord and say, I thought about people who are most vulnerable as I executed the power and the position that I had in the world. Many of us have been trained by a different principle. Many of us are asking ourselves a different question. Business school, 101. The thing you learn on day one is your mission is to increase shareholder value. That's why you have this position. That's why you do what you do. That's why you acquire what you need to acquire. That's why you sell what you sell. Because shareholder value is job number one. And I had a CEO tell me that. He's a CEO of a, a large healthcare provider here in Northwest Arkansas. And I had the chance to sit down with him and talk about his journey and talk about um, what life had been like for him. And he said, that was mission one, one, that was class 101 in business school that I was put here on earth to increase shareholder value. And he told me about his journey of, of working his way up to CEO of this healthcare provider. And the day he was named CEO, he had a friend come to him and say, you know, your jokes just got a lot funnier. <laughs> your jokes just got a lot funnier. And he said, the problem is I'm not really that funny of a guy. But, but, but somehow you just became a whole lot more important than you were a day ago. And he said, I had to look in the mirror and I had to ask myself, what kind of leader was I going to be? Is there something about this power and this position that I have that is incompatible with my identity as a follower of Jesus? And is there something about this core identity I have that allows me to shape this organization in a way that's consistent with who I know I'm, I, I am in Christ. And he said, here's an example of how I've tried to bring my identity as a follower of Jesus into this space. What I'm about to tell you is no secret, but hospital systems across America every year, are, they charge off millions of dollars of unpaid bills. Bills that people can't pay. People show up in emergency rooms. They don't have health care coverage. Hospitals can't turn them away. They give them the care. These people are unable to pay. And hospital systems end up charging, up, charging off millions of dollars in unpaid medical expenses. And that's a problem if you're the CEO of a major health care provider. And so he began to think about these vulnerable people who don't have health insurance. These vulnerable people that have chronic diseases that could probably be alleviated and probably we could keep them out of our emergency room if we would do something upstream. And so they begin to talk about social determinants of health. They begin to talk about things that lead people into an emergency room situation without health care coverage. And one of the things that became very apparent was a lack of affordable housing. People that were homeless. Homeless folks were showing up in emergency rooms. 
One of the assets the healthcare provider had was land. One of the assets the healthcare provider had was a network of relationships in the business community. And so this CEO began to work with other people to create affordable housing options in our area. It was an upstream effort that thought about the most vulnerable. It thought about people who were marginalized and at the same time tried to alleviate a problem in the business. You see, if we'll take James's advice, if we will be slow to speak and quick to listen, and if we will think about things that other people don't think about, then the Spirit of God will lead us to solutions that maybe no one else had ever thought of before. So how does this decision affect the most vulnerable among us? And then finally, here's the third element of this matrix. Is my decision, is the thing I'm committing to do, is this consistent with the collective wisdom of God's people? We have 2,000 years of Christian history, 2,000 years of people who have tried to follow Jesus in times that were equally crazy, if not crazier than ours. And you may feel like you're facing something that no one else has ever faced before, but chances are a follower of Jesus has faced something similar to this. And so is your response or is your decision consistent with the collective wisdom of God's people? And if you're out on an island and no one has ever made this decision before and, and you're the first person, like, let's surround ourselves with some people, some Christians, some folks who love the Lord, who are able to speak truth into our life. So is my decision consistent with the collective wisdom of God's people? Samuel, in some ways, embodies this matrix. At the core, though, he's walking in faith. He's trusting in the Lord. And look at how things play out for Samuel. He goes to the house of Jesse at the Lord's command, He's thinking about the disaster that is Saul. He's not wanting to, to make that mistake again. And he asked Jesse to bring his sons out. And one by one, these sons are presented. And even though they're tall and even though they're strong, the Lord says, no, not any of these. Look at verse 10. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are, are these all the sons you have? Jesse says, well, there is still the youngest. We didn't bother bringing him in here. He's out tending the sheep. And look what Samuel says. Send for him right now. We will not sit down until he arrives. That's a Hebrew euphemism for saying, we will not rest. We will not move on. We will not continue these proceedings until we work through this thing God is calling us to do. Until we fully discern what God is saying. We're going to be slow to speak and quick to listen because God's doing something special here. We're not going to sit down until he arrives. And Samuel had learned something over his years of being a judge. And the Lord was preparing him for this moment. Just a few verses earlier, the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. God was forming and shaping Samuel to look not at the outward appearance. You see, Saul checked all of those boxes. 
But now Samuel has a chance to look into the heart and to see a heart that is able to lead the people of God to be the people that they were called to be. David was brought in, the neglected shepherd, and the Lord immediately confirmed that this was the one. He had the right heart. And, and I think so often, as we're faced with these impossible dilemmas, so often our knee-jerk reaction is to pivot to the warrior king, the Saul way of dealing with whatever we're facing. We want the warrior king. But Samuel teaches us to look for the shepherd king. We want to reign with the warrior king. We want to rush in. We want to solve it all. But maybe God is saying, would you follow the shepherd king? Would you trust in the ways that I've called you? Would you trust in who I've called you to be? Would you follow the ways of this shepherd king? What did Jesus say in John chapter 10? I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And these ways that the shepherd leads us, these are ways where we can experience life and peace and joy and comfort and hope. But in faith, we have to make the decision to trust the shepherd king. We're going to close today. And the worship team's going to lead us. But can I describe for you the place that the shepherd king wants to lead you? Are you feeling confused today? Are you feeling overwhelmed? Are you in a dilemma that seemingly has no good outcome? Follow the shepherd king. And when you do, you'll find yourself here. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And surely, your goodness and your love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is where the shepherd king leads us.